You're listening to Sins of Detroit, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Detroit News. Season 1, Motor City Injustice, a look at wrongful convictions that started with investigations by the Detroit Police Department. Episode 5, Exoneration. Throughout this trial, my whole body quaked from the time that I got in to the time the trial was over, because that's how scared I was of this process. I mean, the courtroom is such an intimidating place. Anybody who's ever been on the other side of it, they know how intimidating and scary it can be. It's got an eerie quietness to it. I'm looking at the jury when they, they bring them in, and I'm trying to, because people tell me, if you look them in the eye and they put the head down, you're convicted. So I'm trying to get any signs. So I look at them, and one lady, she put her head down, and she looked at me, and, and I was making eye contact with her throughout the whole trial, just trying to let her know, just feel me. I'm innocent, like, please, just... You know, and so when she put her head down, looked away, I knew. I'm George Hunter, crime reporter for the Detroit News. Can you imagine finding yourself in the situation Daryl Siggers did, or Aaron Salter, or Justly Johnson, or Kendrick Scott, or Mubariz Ahmed, or Richard Phillips, or any number of Detroiters who were snatched from their lives and put in prison for crimes they didn't commit? Can you imagine that happening to you? Well, these guys don't have to imagine it. They live the nightmare. I'm in so much pain. I'm in shock. And I'm, and I'm so numb from the whole process because it's just so unbelievable. So I get on there, they take me to prison. I get off the bus, and I remember this, and it was so, when they walked us in, it was so much noise. Inmates were screaming, oh no, about 25 of us all standing in the line, butt naked, and now they telling us, going by, pick up your scrotum, turn over, bend over, pick up your feet, and all this stuff. Totally degraded, totally humiliated. I'm standing here, couldn't believe this stuff, you know, but I'm still in shock, I'm still numb. We go to the unit, and it's, it's horrible. The noise is stifling. I mean, this guy's hollering, fish on the rock, new meat on the rock, and, and, it's, and it's, it's the most scariest place I've ever So they walked me to a cell, they pulled this thing back, told me step in, and i never forget the way the cell slammed, the way it sounded, that heavy iron door slamming behind you. Boom, 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 boom. Daryl Siggers was convicted of first-degree murder in 1984 and spent 34 years in prison until he was exonerated in 2018. There are so many others I've covered in recent years who have similar stories. Here's Aaron Salter, who served 15 years for a murder he didn't commit. He says he was pretty ticked off when he first went to prison. Uh, it was a lot of a lot of aggression at first because you know I felt bad that I was in this position. I felt everything that I did up to my life up to then shouldn't have led me there. Like natural life, never getting home. A guy, a man, 21 years old, being sentenced to natural life. That's a death sentence, man. And I just had so much aggression, man, from being wrongfully convicted that I really just wanted to be left alone. You know, when you're dealing with that situation, 
and you reviewing everything that you lost, you really want to be left alone and to your thoughts, man, because you're trying to figure out how can I help myself. Aaron Salter says he was trying to figure out how to help himself, and that's another common theme among the exonerees that I've interviewed. Many of these guys say once they were wrongfully sent to prison, they became obsessed about clearing their names. Here's Daryl Siggers. I see this older gentleman on the yard. He tell me, look, young fellow, he said, the only way you're going to get out of prison is you got to go to that law library, learn the law, learn what they did and how to defend yourself and how to file an appeal. And that's what I did. He didn't have to tell me twice. As soon as I could sign up for law library, I signed up. And I slept the law, ate the law, breathed the law. Everything, every book they gave me, I read. The more I read, the more I wanted to read. And the more educated I became. I got my GED, I got my associate's degree. The more intelligent I got, the more I read about the law, the more empowered I felt. Because now I can defend. Now I know about these court rules. Now I know about these jury instructions. Now I know about, I'm starting to read and file. I'm reading what the, 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 some of the inconsistent statements that they had. I'm looking at where the, I'm reading the transcript and I'm seeing where these police lied and I can point this stuff out. Here's Justly Johnson, who served 18 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. My first day in prison, I was talking to a legal writer. My first day, the first night I was signing up for the law library. You no, know, this is in quarantine. I hadn't even made it to a prison yard yet. And it was a lot of praying, you know, and just I had buckled down and I had come to the resolve that I was going to fight. You know, I wasn't going to allow this to happen, period. I wasn't going to do that. That wasn't going to happen because I didn't do nothing. Mubariz Ahmed is yet another exonerated ex-prisoner who was wrongfully convicted of murder. He spent nearly 18 years in prison until his 2018 exoneration. I sat there, George, saying, how can an innocent man come to prison? But, you know, one thing in my head, I said, I'm not going to give up. I'm not. First three years is like, you know, I was down, depressed enough. Then I said, OK, we're just going to fight. So I started fighting, fighting. To, I think it was about 2004. I lost my son. I had a five-year-old son, which he passed away when I was in prison. And then my, at that time, was 19 years old, six months after him. He passed away. So I said, okay, I'm going to keep fighting for my mother. I'm going to keep fighting for my mother. But two months before I came home, my mother passed away. My whole take is, you know, you can't blame every cop there is, but all the bad cops, they give the bad, a name, a bad name for all the rest of them that are striving and, you know, and want to do good. What happened? Don't you, you know, you, you swear to protect and uphold and you're, you're for the citizens and the people? What happened? And, you know, they say justice. Just, where is justice? Has this cop tried to reach out and say he apologizes or anything? No, because he's not going to admit that he's wrong. You know, I wish the best for him and everything. I have no ill will. It's just, you know, I want him to think about my family, what they went through for the 18 years, how much people I lost. How can you live with that on your mind? For more Detroit crime coverage, breaking news, features, and sports, please click on www.detroitnews.com. The Detroit News, our reporting, your stories.
I did not do this crime. I ain't do it, man. I ain't do it. Had nothing to do with it whatsoever. I did not kill anyone. I did not do this crime. Had nothing to do with it whatsoever. I did not do this crime. For many decades, Detroit's wrongfully convicted prisoners felt like their voices were just cries in the wilderness and that nobody was listening to their claims of innocence. But there's been a sea change in recent years, both at the Detroit Police Department and the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office. In 2017, Prosecutor Kim Worthy started the Conviction Integrity Unit to reinvestigate the large number of innocence claims that have been coming out of Wayne County recently, most of them from Detroit. In the past, Worthy took a lot of criticism for how she handled wrongful conviction claims. But in recent years, she's received accolades from the innocence community for starting the Conviction Integrity Unit and for choosing longtime defense attorney and innocence advocate Valerie Newman to run it. Here's Val Newman. We um, already have five exonerations, and we have uh, five cases where we have granted, we've not exonerated someone, but we have found serious problems that undermine the integrity of the conviction during our investigation, such that we're not confident that they're innocent, but we're not confident that they would have been found guilty had these problems been brought to light at the time the trial took place. So we've, those people have been granted new trials. I think there's a recognition about wrongful convictions um, more now than there ever has been for a couple of reasons. I think one of those reasons is the wave of criminal justice reforms that are happening today in the United States. And so I think as a result of a lot of people being willing to take a hard look at the justice system, how it's operated and how it could work better for people, did the system work properly? And if it didn't work properly, there's, we need to be courageous and we need to stand up and we need to admit that it didn't work properly and we need to fix it. We have a very good working relationship with the Detroit Police Department. I think Chief Craig has been very vocal about his willingness to look into to cases where someone's maintaining that they've been wrongfully convicted. Um, and we have a cooperative working agreement with DPD. So if they, if DPD refer, receives a request for reinvestigation, it comes to us, and then we work cooperatively with them um, to take a second look at the case. Chief James Craig has made significant changes to the police department since he took over in 2013. And he says while things certainly aren't perfect now, the chances of wrongful convictions happening out of his department have been lessened because officers and supervisors are being held accountable. What I did was I knew that there needed to be not a partial, but a wholesale change to management and accountability, which was absent. In May of 2019, federal judge David Lawson issued a scathing ruling in the lawsuit brought by Devante Sanford, who claims he was wrongfully convicted of a 2007 quadruple homicide, which we discussed in episodes two and three of this podcast. 
In his ruling, the judge ripped into former Detroit Police Deputy Chief James Talbert and homicide detective Mike Russell, both of whom are accused of framing Sanford for the four murders when he was 14 years old. Judge Lawson discusses in his ruling the, quote, crucial lies that were told by Russell and Tolbert, end quote. But Tolbert no longer works for the Detroit police, but after Chief Craig saw the judge's comments, he moved Russell out of homicide, took his gun and badge and put him on restricted duty, and launched an internal affairs investigation into how Russell handled the Sanford case. Well, we're still very much involved in the investigation. Uh, clearly, um, there's an allegation uh, that uh, he provided false information uh, under oath, possibly. And so that's still a, a very active investigation. So I can't go into a lot of detail right now, but it certainly is concerning. Uh, the end never justifies the means. I'm not bitter. I mean, some, some people get out of prison and they're bitter. People ask me all the time, and why are you not bitter? Because bitterness don't take you forward. It keeps you stagnant. It keeps you right where you're at. So as I began to learn how to love myself, because at, at the beginning, I hated everything that had to do with the law. I hated the police. I hated the prosecutors. I hated everything because they were supposed to protect me, and they didn't. I felt like they let me down. I hated the system, but I had to get over that hate. I had to get over that pain. Daryl Siggers has had more than his share of pain. But he said there have also been good times, none better than when he finally got word that after 34 years spent behind bars for a murder he didn't commit, he was about to be free. I literally felt like I was in the matrix because my vision began to narrow. I'm looking at people, people slowing down, things are moving real slow. I'm all this emotion, and so at this point, I'm cheering up. I get on my knees, I thank God, and I go through the whole range of emotions. Um, one of my friends knew that I was going, you know, I was expecting a call from the lawyer that day, so he knocked on the window, you know, and uh, he see the tears. He said, what happened, man? They denied you, man? I said, no, they granted it. And he just hollered and screamed. He said, man, he went up and down the rock telling people, man, they just granted Sigazil. They just vacated his conviction. I was so, one of the most happiest days of my life. I was blessed by the University of Michigan Innocence Clinic. They picked up my case. They put two, 26 student attorneys on my case. And then uh, they worked on it for nine years. In 2017, they came and then they finally, with the help of uh, Valerie Newman from the Integrity Unit, they, they found out I was innocent. Here's University of Michigan Innocence Clinic Director David Moran. Since the clinic opened in 2009, we've had 22 victories, uh, 19 men, three women who between them served about 320 years of wrongful incarceration. And so when we get them out, it's, it's a wonderful feeling. Uh, the students, it's something they never forget. And we always promise the students a party. When we get an exoneration, we'll hold a, a celebration in which we invite all the students who worked on the case, including students who worked on the case maybe years ago and are now working in law firms in New York or LA, they'll come back and attend the celebration with their newly released client. Uh, anybody else who helped us, private investigators who helped us on the case, sometimes uh, the media that was involved in the case will come to the, to the celebration. And of course the exoneree and his or her friends and family will come and we'll just have a, a great party. Um, because it is such a rewarding feeling, and many of our exonerees stay in touch 
for years or continuously. Um, so we they become our friends, and and we become invested in in how they're getting on, how they're rebuilding their lives after those years or decades of wrongful imprisonment. I've lost a lot, you know, my, just, you know, and particularly my family. You know, my daughter was the hardest, losing her was the hardest thing I've ever had to overcome. And um, even now, as I reflect on her, I, you know, it's painful because that's my baby and I love her. And, uh, but all I can do is go on. All I can do is go on. Um, I can't let the pain that I still feel consume me. I just got to keep going. That's all I can do. Every day I get up and look for a reason to smile. You know, and there are many blessings. I get up and I see the sun shining and there's no barriers between us. I can hear birds chirping. 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 This concludes season one of Sins of Detroit. Please join us again for season two, coming soon from the Detroit News. Mm-hmm.